Hello and welcome to The Creative Process. I'm Terry Clark and today Mia Funk and I interview award-winning poet Alice Fulton. Fulton has written a number of popular books of poetry including Sensual Math, Felt, and her most recent book Barely Composed. Fulton has also delved into fiction and prose with entries such as Feelings as a Foreign Language and The Nightingales of Troy. In this interview, we discuss Alice's views on poetry, her perception of poetry, and its place in the world. Without further ado, let's turn things over to Mia Funk. Alice Fulton, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Terry. Yes, so why don't we just begin? I always love to to hear and to read the the writer's work so that's i think you've selected a, a few poems from barely okay. composed yeah i i haven't read these in a long time um for me at least because usually before a reading i, I warm up <laughs> not warmed up but um i'll begin with the first sort of a prelude poem in my most recent book the book is called barely composed and um there, there's a lot in here that felt difficult to write, and that's why it's called Barely Composed. Uh, it was about me just trying to hang on, get through it all. And I picked this one to begin with, to read right now, because it reminds me in a way of this moment that we're in with the pandemic. Um, we're facing something that we've never really faced before in our lifetime even in my lifetime, which is quite long by now. I've never faced anything like this uh, worldwide pandemic. So this poem in an oblique way talks about that feeling, I think, although it was written before, before this moment. And it quotes from um, Shakespeare. It reinscribes Shakespeare in a line. I toy with a line from Shakespeare and kind of rewrite it, actually. Reinscribe it. Because we never practiced with the escape chamber, we had to read the instructions as we sank. In a hand like carded lace, not nuclear warheads on the sea's floor, nor the violet glow of the reactor will outlive this sorrowful rhyme. Vain halo. My project becalmed, I'll find I've built a monument more passing than a breeze. It will cost us, Boricita. We can't buy a prayer. Did you call my name? Or was that the floorboard wheezing? These memories won't get any bigger, will they? I think something is coming that will vastly improve our quietude. I'm growing snow crystals from vapor in anticipation and praying for the velvet cushioned kneeler that I need to pray. I made this little sound for you to wait in. It's this, I think it's a sonnet. <laughs> I'd have to look at it more carefully. 
Oh, I think it's beautiful. What, what did you think, uh, Terry, who is our participating student? Um, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I think um, there's a lot of beautiful language and imagery in there that you were able to incorporate um, into your lines, especially um, the, the imagery of sort of the, the nuclear facets and the halo and especially things um, pertaining to prayer. I think they really stood out very well in your prelude poem there. Well, thank you. The, the part about the nuclear warheads is rewriting of a line from Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, Neither marble nor the gilded monuments will outlive this powerful rhyme. And Shakespeare meant that, um, you know, sincerely. Uh, Neither marble nor the gilded monuments will outlive his poetry. And you could say, yes, he, he was right. But in this poem, it's not nuclear warheads on the seas floor, nor the violet glow over the reactor will outlive this sor sorrowful, this sorrowful rhyme. And then it's ironic, vain halo. <laughs> Of course that's not true. My project becomes, I'll find I built a monument more passing than a breeze. You know, I say the opposite. My monument is, is more passing than a breeze. So I kind of reinscribed what Shakespeare was saying. And uh, it's about the ephemeral and how transience and um, we don't have that, I don't think we have that worldview that things last. The statues are being pulled down today. Even the marble, you know, <laughs> everything's transient. And so this poem, is about that. It's it's about how things don't last in a way, and uh, including including the poem. Um, and yeah, I think, and I want to go back to. I know you're going to read in another poem for us, but it really, it that's an example of I what I believe is why we need poetry. I think some people, young people, um, a lot of people are growing up. There's there's a lot of things. There's a lot of distractions. And so they're not getting the experience of poetry, but as you say, it's so intimate and it's so reflective. And then it addresses these, I don't even like to call them issues, but like existential ex experiences that we're having in ways that other mediums can't address. So I really think that's the power of poetry and why we need poetry. Because some people will even say, oh, I don't, poetry doesn't touch my life, but I mean, I feel, badly for them. Yes, and, and I think a lot of people just feel it's too hard. It's difficult, but um, if for some, in some ways, but it can, it can be, it requires a certain patience. And that's probably a good thing to linger with it and to stay with it. But, you know, to take it to popular culture for a minute, just from a kind of popular culture that was, when I was young, was very strong. Um, when I listen to music, lyrics, I never had to understand them completely, and I love that I didn't. I'd put the record on again and listen to it again. And, you know, if you take an example, high-profile example, Bob Dylan, if you listen, you know, you don't always get it the first time. And that was what I loved about it. I didn't want anything I got the first time. I'd listen to it, put it on again, put the record on again. Poetry is like that. You read it again. And if, you, if it doesn't seem inextinguishable and inexhaustible, then it's probably not really good poetry. So it's what you want to go back to, and it's the parts that intrigue you and seduce you and that you want to hear again because they're beautiful and they're mysterious and they're musical, but you don't 
completely maybe get it. So that's one of the strengths. And just be patient, I, I would say to people, and to, to, to read it again and don't just dismiss it quickly, but to linger with it. And fortunately, there are different kinds of poetry for everyone. You know, there are poems that are easier and um, closer to prose, closer to um, just closer to things that are very transparent. And you could say the most transparent is newspapers, t-shirt slogans. Um, so it's all language and, and those poems serve their purpose too. Um, they're there for people to grasp quickly and to recite and maybe the oral tradition, the things that we keep in our hearts that we don't read in a book, but that someone recited to us and that we remember all our lives. Uh, rhymes, you know, from way back in the language. All of that is the power of poetry. So it does more than one thing. And as long as we're on this, I think it's interesting um, about you're talking about a certain kind of, maybe not a responsibility, but to address the serious questions or to address in poetry what cannot be said in prose or not in the same way, or that the essay, because I know you've also written essays and short stories too, but you know, maybe there's some things for poetry and that, that can give it, that can explore some of those serious issues um, in ways that aren't touched elsewhere. So you feel that there are really things that you have, like, in, in your lifetime as a poet had to address. Yes, yes, and I think those things change too, as your life changes. Um, because writers really write from character and from experience. And, uh, and as you get older, you've had different experiences. And so the deep things that you want to address change and your consciousness might be raised about issues um, that are important, that weren't on the radar before. So all of that, all of that comes into play. Um, and I don't know, maybe it, maybe it gets harder because you expect more of yourself as you get older. And also because every writer, if they have a public presence, has criticism. And criticism is a kind of birth control where, you know, it's people saying, oh, you're not doing that well. And if you internalize that, you slow down. But I think your question was actually more about what poetry can do as well, that fiction and essays don't do. Um, I think it, it addresses, I have a, a little saying, poetry is about what happens now. Fiction is about what happens next. Fiction has narrative tension and it's, um, always trying to get the reader to turn that page. You know, even great fiction, but it's, it's about character. And poetry can be about anything. And it doesn't have that kind of need for a narrative tension. It's about language and feeling, and it can be about every line is the now, the moment. So poetry is about what happens now, in that we look at the line and we're with it. We go to the next line, we're with that. We, we end the poem and we're there. But there isn't that sort of fiction is about what happens next where you think, oh, I can't wait to find out what's going to happen to that character. Poetry doesn't have to do that. And it's a great liberation to just be with the language and be with feeling and an idea uh, also. You know, what you're writing about, it might be, um, 
as you, you began by saying global warming, it could be about the environment, it could be about social wrongs that are important, it could be feminism, it could be animals, um, animal studies, cruelty to animals, or feminism, um, Black Lives Matter, uh, it could be any of those social things. But it also could be very deeply about feeling. You know, poets who write about the greatest traumas and the greatest things that we go through. Um, Emily Dickinson, who wrote so much about, um, about death and about the things that we all have to encounter. And those are the deep subjects that poetry gets right to. There isn't any sort of, we're waiting for that to happen. It's right there on the page. And the first stanza, maybe uh, that's not the only thing poetry can do. And one of the things I love about it is that it really can do anything. There are narrative poems and there are poems with characters, there are poems with people. But in a sense, that's not the important part. They're there, but they're always there in service, in service to something else in the poem. Uh, a language, idea, uh, and poetry has to be seductive in its own way. I think it has to, um, for me as the reader, I have to find something fresh, surprising in the language. It can be the oldest idea in the world, ideas of time or death, um, losing people that you love. But poetry tries to say it in a way we've never heard before to wake us up. It's, it's a slap, it's a, a hand clap. And it, it tries to awaken you to ideas that perhaps you, you know, but you've never heard that way before. That's one thing it can do. And it's a great art form. And I was drawn into it very young. <laughs> so in high school, really. And um, I found I, I was continually interested in it. Do you know, have you found this, and then I'll, I'll, we can sit down to the conversation. Have you found this sometimes, Alice, that you know, you're not sure? Like you've been to, I've been told, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what something is good or bad. I, I just like did it quickly, so I can't tell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, and I'm, this relates to youthful writing too. Um, and then someone says, oh, that's really great. I'm like, really? That was like written in five minutes. Why? <laughs> this one that I've struggled over, you know? <laughs> so no, I'm saying, yeah. There's something to be said for spontaneity. And sometimes you get these things that are just gifts mm -hmm. and they can be the best, the best things that you write and yeah. other ones that you struggle over, not so much. But, you know, in both cases, I don't sometimes know whether other people are going to like it. I might like it, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I have no idea what other people are going to be thinking of a certain a certain piece, but what you began by saying is really relevant, I think, to young writers, um, that you write differently when you're young, and you, you might think, as you were saying, Mia, that it's going to be a progress narrative, that in other words, you get better, uh, and you do, in some ways, maybe technically learn the craft, certain elements of craft, but um, there are things you can write when you're young that you cannot write again. And it's to do with even technique and um, the way that you're writing them. And you can't go back and, and create that feeling or that time that made you write that way. So I always think with young writers that what they're writing now should be very valuable to them and save it, to save it. And um, later you change and the later work is good too. But, but 
it's not some kind of progress narrative where it necessarily gets better all the time. The young work can be terrific and exciting. I found that out because somebody once wanted me to sort of write an early poem again. It was a musician I was working with and it was, can you write one like how to swing those obligados around? And it was a long time after that and I found I couldn't, I just can't, I can't do that again. Even though that was quick poem, you know, written very easily as you say and um, not a hard poem at all technically, but just something I lost touch with that part of my, um, my writing, so. Yeah. And what is the next uh, poem you selected for us? Well, <laughs> having not picked anything out, I will just, uh, let's see, what did I think I might read? Um, I could read one about the heart. I wrote one called Triptych for Topological Heart, and it's three poems about the heart, and they're all very short. Uh, I think they're sonnets. Again, I've haven't analyzed this. I don't go back to my own work unless I'm going to be giving a reading. So um, I'll read this first one from, from the series of three, the, the triptych. And it's really a love poem. This book is also about love, which is a positive thing, not just about time and death, and, but also about love, which is unending throughout one's life. So triptych for topological heart. A love poem. It befalls us, an exchanged glance, reflective spasm. Is it a fantastically unlaminated question set in flesh? Or Valentine that wears the air as its apparel? If you caught a heart from parchment, is it still a heart? A non-trivial knot, where turns of every gradient may kiss and tell. Does the vessel have edges? Or is it all connectedness, an embedding to be stretched or bent? Imagine being simultaneously alive, bound in both directions with a bow. Is it diachronic? a phenomenon that changes over time. Without ardor, theory suffers. That's why I'm stuck on you with wanton glue, persevering, styling something blobbish and macabre into something pointed, neat. Love is a gift that springs from an unlit spot. Rosin and rue even when I'm in the dark, I'm in the dark with you. Okay, well, the next part, um, again, we're talking about the heart as an emblem for love, connection. Say it quivers rather than contracts, fluttery with ruptions. Doctors call it holiday heart. Valentine's Day, named for a saint whose head is venerated in Rome is also National Organ Donor Day, okay? Give anatomical dark chocolates infused with true invariants. With smoked salt, pepper, and Beaujolais in a plain brown box, embellished with praises in a romance language in your hand. 
please. None cosseted in plush like the stuff inside a coffin. I'm just praying. Can you find a pulse or dry needle trigger point? Just saying, this fudge has tears in it. Someone's been sweating over this. Listen, Mr. Stethoscope. I'm at the end of my hope. Still, I'll grow another blossom for that blossom-crowned skull. So that's the second, which is more cutting and acerbic view of, um, of love and relationship. Okay, and this is the last one in the triptych. And again, it's got edge. Anger's a part of a relationship. <laughs> I think any relationship that's deep and intimate, eventually one has to deal with those um, shortfalls and with the anger that comes with being human. So this is the last part. Some give vinegar valentines, no pillow words, just floppy organ thistle burr, fruit loops and craft wire fashioned on a snarky jig. To my pocket prints, by bitch possessed, tough tits, isn't it? Some call it a day, marked by commodified flowers, obligation chocolate. Some live on clinical sprinkles, asking where's the feast? The carnelian pin with open work components that let you see its self-pleasuring mechanism, storm hormones, and single pulsing vein. What even is it? Here's the thing. A gift cannot be cynical unless the giver is. I will pay you to test this for me. It's closets vast with steadfastness at best. At least for me, surpass all other closets in the flesh. I'm sending this from my memory foam head. Valentines intensify the surface, heart the depths. So um, the, the perspectives on love, and we were talking a little bit before um, we started about the things that you write at a young age and things you write at an, at an older age. And so I don't know your age. At, I mean, there's a certain sinister, they're not so clearly cynical, but some, there's a romanticism. So I may I ask you, at what point in your life did you write that? That, that I just yes. wrote? Yes. Oh, so, that's very recent. Yeah. Pretty recent in my long view. Yeah, I wrote that maybe, um, I don't know, five years ago. But that, for me, in a long career, that's pretty pretty recent. Uh, I don't know if it was quite that long ago, but yeah, it must have been. Yes. I mean, I knew the publication date. It's just to give the context and what I thought was yes. an interesting, um, like, would you feel that as you contrast the way you wrote about love in different periods in your life or wrote about other subjects, that how, what was that like? Good question. As I think back, because I have my first book right here too, I always had a kind of, um, I think tendency to have an edge as well as write poems that were very straightforward, loving poems. I have one from a more, you know, mid-career book called Fix that is um, 
there is no caring less for you is the repeating line. And it's just a very sincere, straightforward, completely heartfelt love poem. There is no caring less for you for me. But always throughout my career, I've had those other poems that would say how difficult it is to have the relationship. So I think, I think I've always written both kinds from the beginning, although I don't go back to the beginning that often to think about it. But I've got my first book here, so I'll just take a glance at this and see. I've always written love poems too. But I think, you know, it's also interesting is that we have, we have rhythms, and you know this more than I would know. We each have rhythms, and our rhythms change over time as well, just as our body moves differently, right? So that thing, even if the mind can even go there in memory, there's something about our rhythm that's changed. And I, I guess that you would just sense it when you read poetry that you could tell the decade for you, maybe. Oh, yes. And I think the way we write changes. The rhythm of our writing practice can change as well. So that when you're a young poet, let's say, um, because I began as a fiction writer much later than I began as a poet. So I never began as a young fiction writer. But I can say as a young poet, um, you know, everything is interesting and everything seems I can do it. And everything seems available to language. So there's a great uh, quickness to it sometimes and spontaneity. Uh, and they are written quickly and that is rhythm. There's a quicker rhythm to the writing. You know, you'd write a po you might write five poems in a day or you might write two. And later on, you might spend six months on, on one poem because the bar has been raised in a certain way or you're expecting more of yourself 20 years down the road. You, you don't want to write the same kind of poem that you were writing when you were young. And also you realize time is getting short. You need to address the big questions. It's no longer going to be, I saw a woman walking down the street with a clown face on or whatever, you know, and that's cute. Or, it's um, later on you think, oh, I've got to get to those things I always kind of meant to write about and I never quite let myself. And that can take six months to approach subjects that are deeper, harder, more dramatic. Um, so, yeah, your practice itself has a rhythm that, that changes, I think, over your life as a writer. And... And so it's interesting because you have also collab. I'm just listening to the elements I and mean, there's this elegant or beautiful, you know, crafted language. And then there's this kind of um, sometimes street elements or uh, it's kind of slang or familiar mm -hmm. language. Uh, and you've also collaborated with um, musicians. And I can see how that's something they can also get their teeth into, you know. So speak, tell us a little bit about what that experience was like the first time you heard your words then taking on a different life. Put to music or, or set to music? Oh, gosh. Um, it's amazing to, to work, and I have worked with quite a few musicians. I even, I think what struck me as my poems were set, not song lyrics, but which I've also written, but uh, poems were set, is that the music, the music excavated the subtext. In other words, this whole unspoken level of poetry that you can't put into words, and you wouldn't want to, because then it wouldn't be the poem, because the reader is meant to grasp what is between the lines. The music itself, without language, 
got what was between the lines. And for me, that was very thrilling, was to hear uh, the ineffable expressed in that way, to hear the emotion expressed in the music itself um, without language. So that was a fantastic gift that musicians gave to the poem. And that's a reason to set them because um, one thing poetry tries to do is create its own music through the rhythms and the sounds. And so in a way it's the closest language can get to music. It is the closest language can get to music. Um, but when I heard what musicians would do with the poem, I realized, well, they're getting what was between the lines and people can feel it because music is able to do that. It's able to make people feel with no words. And oh, it's something I revere about it, that you can listen to it and be so deeply moved and there's no words. It's something else. It's tone and of course pitch and dynamics and everything we think of with music. So there was that. And it's wonderful to have collaboration. It's great to work with another person. Um, and I, I just revere music so much and I'm in awe of what musicians can do. They have a skill I, I completely lack. I mean, I'm not totally, I'm not tone deaf or anything. That would be awful. But, um, but I don't have their ability and I'm in awe of, of how they can make it, how they can create music. I think as I've had conversations with musicians and composers, and then to hear them speak about it, that's, it's a, for, for us who might not be deeply absorbed in the practice, um, you may think it's sound that doesn't have a, a body. It, it's um, abstract. But when they have spoken about it to me, they talk about it having colors and like being a quite dimensional, you know? And so their sensitivity on all these um, takes in the other senses that I thought, oh, are only touched by, they were concerned with sound, but they're concerned, you know, they're thinking of in images. Sometimes they have this synesthesia too. So it's, um, so I found, found that illuminating. So it is, it is great when they can add that add that to the, the words and find things that were there, but not explicit. Yes, yes. And I'm sure that musicians with their innate ability are hearing things in the music that are not available to me. Um, I worked with um, a wonderful musician, William Balcom. Um, and he, when we were working together on a, a sequence uh, the first time we worked together, it was to set a sequence by women poets, female poets, and they were sung by Marilyn Horn. And he said that her voice was buttery. I believe that was what he said, but it was a very sensual, you know, word he picked from, of, with materiality and from food. And it never would have occurred to me to, to talk about the human voice as being when it was sung as anything like buttery, and especially um, a singer with her, her kind of talent and skill and expertise. So yeah, I mean, that was listening to him talk about music and other musicians as well. They, they open a door for me into something that's, um, that wouldn't be open for me otherwise. And I, I guess with language, writers can do that for people too. 
and poetry, um, poetry has its own kind of synesthesia as well, where you can, you can feel it in ways that maybe you don't if you read too quickly, but it slows you down and you begin to feel it's tactile and uh, it has a kind of materiality. Hey guys, it's Terry giving you a quick interlude here. So Alice Fulton has some more great insights to give you all, but I wanted to touch on something that she mentioned that we had to cut for time purposes. Alice asked me about my degree from college and I told her about my aspirations to be a writer someday. Both her and Mia gave some great advice that I think any creative should take to heart. First, don't put your work on the back burner. It's easy for life to get in the way of things we enjoy creating, and we then ignore the creative ideas that exist within us. Alice explains that as creators, who we are in the now affects our work, and the more we put off our creations, the more they change into something they were never meant to be. So if you are going to paint, draw, sculpt, perform, or write, don't wait for an opening in your schedule, but make your own instead. Alice also talked about what you should create, and that is what you love and what interests you. Many creators will simply create for an audience, even if they secretly don't want to. We also change over time, so if you start by drawing vivid self-portraits and then choose to draw silly cartoon animals instead, some people might be clamoring for you to go back to your original niche. Alice says that you must stick with what you want because that is what will keep the fire of your creation going strong. And lastly, you may think that what you're making isn't good enough or never will be. We like to think it's a quality game where every piece of art has to become a symphony or a work of art such as Starry Night by Van Gogh. But the reality is that the best creators never got it right on the first attempt. They rewrote, redrew, and tried again and again until they were happy. Even some of the little things you create for the sake of fun or experimentation may end up being your best work. You just don't know it yet. We are our own worst critics, but we shouldn't stop ourselves from creating. Whatever you want to work on and wherever your creative passion draws you should be the direction you go. Remember to never try and fill the spaces carved by those that came before you. Instead, carve your own space and thrive within it. And now, back to our interview with Alice Fulton. And uh, so you've also written linked short stories um, that, you know, um, The Nightingales of Troy. Uh, just tell us about the origins of the, that collection and, uh, and this, these multiplicity of voices and perspectives. How did you, what was your way in? And, and why, why choose uh, uh, short stories then? Well, I, I love fiction as well as poetry. And I think one of the things I often say, and I'm certainly not the only one to say it, is to try to write the kind of book you love to read. And I do love to read fiction. I've always been interested in it. So for me, it was a dream to try to, um, to write it because I've enjoyed it so much. And I want to give pleasure to my readers. 
I thought it also might be available. I could write something that would be available to people who didn't read poetry. But um, I think I was thinking about people that I knew when I wrote my fiction book, um, which I have here. I'll just grab it to remind myself. It's about uh, people in my mother's family, my aunts and my mother. And I wrote it because they were so interesting. It came from character. And I think that's a great place for, fic for fiction to begin is with people. Um, it didn't come from language the way poetry does. It actually came from um, knowing people who were, I thought, interesting, but secretive. And there weren't, I couldn't understand them completely. And there were things about their lives, mysteries, and I didn't know the answers to those mysteries. So one way into fiction was to think, what happened there? I will never find out. Um, maybe the person who knew died or they're too secretive to tell me, it's too deep, it's too traumatic. So by writing fiction, I could recreate it and then I could answer some of those, those questions. Um, I could put an ending to a mystery and to a story. And writing the book, it helped me be close to people I had lost, uh, people who died. Um, and stories my mother had told me uh, are in the book. And I like the idea of writing a story from each decade of the 20th century, which is what I did. It came to me that it would be so interesting to follow a group of people throughout the century and show them at different points in their life. So that was what I did. I began at the beginning of the century and it was a story of my mother being born. And it was pretty much a story that she had told me. Uh, she, she had a great line. It was, I gave birth to myself. And it was that her mother was alone when she was born. Her mother had no one to help her. And to go through childbirth alone must be very scary at the turn of the, my mother was born in 1913. And I said it a little bit earlier, actually, to get in the first decade of the century. But it's about a woman who's alone giving birth. And, um, and that happened. That was my mother being born. And um, my mother just has had a wonderful exuberance and great things to say. And so she's a character who goes throughout the book. She is born. And then she, in the 1930s, becomes a nurse. And she has terrific experiences and gave me a chance to go into old medicine to read lots of old stuff about before antibiotics and what nurses had to do. Uh, you know, that was amazing. And my father is in that story too, in that he owned an old, an old hotel. And um, the hotel is in the book and it's during the depression. And it was a residential hotel where people would live. He also owned a nightclub that was um, a floating nightclub on the Hudson River in New York. And that's a kind of wonderful scene. It was called the Ship of Joy. So I got to write about that, about the nightclub floating on the Hudson River and the hotel. And then I take the, my mother's character through the book from when she was born. She becomes a nurse and she has daughters and um, one, I think, in the book. She has one daughter in the book because um, it's fiction. And she just gradually goes through decades and then at the end, she's at the end of her life. So it does follow her through and it follows her sisters and 
all of it, it gave me a chance to see, um, to see how people change over time and to take someone from when they were a baby and, and follow them through. And for me as a writer, it was wonderful to, to think so deeply about these people and to reimagine them and to have their voices back again. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> I kind of got off on a tangent and forgot, I think, what you asked me to say. Or no, I think gives a great, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm also a real fan. I'm really drawn to um, books of fiction written by poets. So I think that that helps, but it, you know, then you have to know the, the beauty of the language that's there too. And I think that it's, it's really interesting and all these resilient women and, you know, this, these unusual experiences and then you different through a different perspective. Sometimes you go into, um, you know, not, it's not the first person or third person. I'm interested in those choices as well. And yes. I also thought, so you were able to, obviously these are stories that pass on uh, down to you, but then there was an element of research because it's historical. And I thought, oh yes, because sometimes when you uh, research when you do reading for, I don't know, as a poet, I don't know if that research, you know, I think that some people read for information, right? And they, they read to learn. I'm not sure that all poetry readers are like that. And I'm, I, I, I suspect that if you do research as a poet, a lot of, you have to um, throw away or hide a lot of the research because it just doesn't work with the poem. So I thought, oh, you could kind of, you know, get a good, um, you could let that out, you know, that uh, acquisition of these worlds. Yeah, well, the research for the fiction was so fascinating at times that I felt I was never going to stop researching and begin writing, <laughs> writing the actual story. And I feel it almost can be too, too interesting, the research that you can get drawn into. And it's unending, especially if you're researching a time period you didn't live through, because you're learning uh, the ways people spoke. And to take the 1920s, I learned the colors were called by different names. Um, I would read the old newspapers and there would be something like a color Baghdad blue or a, a shade of red that was American, American rose or something. I didn't even know what color they were talking about because they all had these colored names of the time. So the research itself was so fascinating, but so necessary. And I felt like it did add lots of depth when I was able to finally corral it and, and get it to serve the story and to rein it in and um, to, to actually use it in service of the characters and the stories I was telling. Um, and, but I, I love to read, you know, all sorts of, of things. And because there was a story set in every decade, it was very research oriented. It had to be. Taking everything into account, it, it's interesting to hear you sort of talk about your process because you you are mainly a poet, but you're transitioning into, but you transitioned into fiction with uh, the Nightingales of Troy, and the 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 results and process are very interesting to hear about because in my experiences, I see myself as more of a fiction writer, but when I went to school and was taking poetry classes, there are a lot of facets about poetry that I just couldn't, couldn't wrap my head around, especially when I was asked to sort of analyze other people's 
poetry, you know, one of my most notorious assignments was reading a, a poetry book by Daniel Popick that just came out recently called Fear of Description. And I had to write a five page paper for it and I had no idea what was going on. And so it's interesting to hear from someone who's sort of straddled the line between these two mediums and is able to sort of build themselves and say, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone and experience a different genre and see how that is. And I think that can also be said about what we were talking with music. One artist from one genre and one medium taking a different genre and adding their own sort of twist to it, I think is a very fascinating concept. Mm. Well, I think I, I had been writing poetry for such a long time um, that when I started writing fiction, well, it was really euphoric because I was starting as a beginner. I love to be a beginner anyway. Uh, and I, my analogy was it was like being in a room, poetry is like being in a room that was small and I got to open a, w a window with fiction. I was opening a window and suddenly there was air and there was a different view. Uh, and it was all in my mind. It was My mind was opening this window. And for me, that was so enticing and exciting. And there was something new with language that I could do. There was something, a new way of thinking. And I have to say, it was far from counterintuitive. It was far from intuitive. Fiction for me was so hard and counterintuitive because I had all these years of writing poetry and poetry had come to me first the way that you're saying, Terry, that fiction comes to you first. Um, poetry for me had been fairly easy. And fiction, I wanted to write from the beginning, but I wasn't, I wasn't as good at it. I didn't know how to do it. And I said to myself, I think I can learn this. I think I can, I love it. I, I want to try to learn um, how to do it and to give it a try. So all of that effort of trying and or learning was, was euphoric and fun. It was actually really fun. And about my book, I want to say one thing because I dwelled on my mother's sisters and my aunts, but when I think about this collection, for me, it's really about the limits of altruism. That for me is the big subject in this book. It's about people who were raised in a culture, in a religion, Catholicism, uh, and in an Irish Catholic milieu that taught them to give and give and give to other people. And the book is about how that affected them, the price they paid. Sometimes it's wonderful, it's beautiful, and sometimes it's um, suicidal. Sometimes they destroy themselves, giving too much. So almost every story is about the nature of altruism and the limits of it. And if it's okay, I thought I would read the first paragraph of the book because it addresses what I, what I just said. Um, this is the one where it's the year I think is 1910 and it's called Happy Dust and it's in the voice of um, the oldest woman in the book who is based on my, um, my grandmother who I never met, I never knew her but my mother told me a little bit about her. Sainthood is a kind of a thread too. So the book begins, in the 20th century, I believe there are no saints left. 
but our farm on Bog Road had not yet entered the 20th century. At that time, around 1908 it would be, I had a secret I could tell to no one, least of all a saint or an arsenic eater. In my experience, it is better to keep away from saints unless you have business with them. The same backbone that makes them holy virtuosos makes them eager to mind other people's P's and Q's. But some of the saints I knew were family, and this made them hard to fend off. Don't think I'm speaking of my sister-in-law, Kitty. She was not a saint, but a lost soul. So right there I'm into what goes throughout the book, which is the notions of good, of goodness. How is it possible to be good? And um, the battle between good and evil and um, some of those things and how they play out and how some people are so good it destroys them and other people, um, it works for other people. I think that is one of the biggest things in the book that I was addressing. You know, it, what Terry brought up um, about, you know, the strain, for him, the strangeness of poetry, it mm -hmm. relates to your essay collection, Feeling as a Foreign Language. Mm -hmm. um, and then what inspired you to, to write that? What questions did you ask yourself or were you asked, you know, going into it? Well, every, it's a book of essays. And so every essay probably had a different provenance or a different question. Um, a lot of them were written for assignments. You know, there was someone who said, would you like to write about this? And then I said, oh, well, okay, I will. Um, and poetics, I think poetry is theorized quite a bit. You know, it's, you, you write theory about poetry to help other people understand it or to help people write it you know, poets who, who want to write it. Um, so there's some, what you would call almost theory in the book and not in any dry way, but in a way of how do you understand it? How do you write it? Uh, what are some new ways of writing it that have not been tried before? So there's that in the book. Um, and yeah, and then too, I, I have some book reviews, I think in this book. I think it's almost a, responsibility of poets to to do some book reviewing because nobody wants to everyone wants to be the poet but no one wants to be the reader in a certain way or not talk about it and not uh, say what they like about it so that was i wanted to include some of that you know what critical work about how i'm reading poetry and there's an essay about emily dickinson um she's one of my favorite poets so I had a chance at one point to write an essay about her, so I, I did that, um, trying to say something about her that at the time maybe had not been said in quite that way. So it's, it's all about different aspects of poetry. I called the first part process, um, and it's, yeah, I don't even know if that one's about poetry. I don't think it really is. It's a more autobiographical essay. But then there's some others that are fractal verse and um, there's even one I wrote about my own work. Emily Dickinson is in here. And, um, and then the last one in the book is called A Poetry of Inconvenient Knowledge. And in that I was thinking how poetry can address things that we don't wanna think about, things that are very inconvenient for us at the time. Um, 
My favorite kind of knowledge is the inconvenient kind, the things that I can read just a little bit of this. It's the very last part of the, it's the ending of the book. So what do I want from poetry? The head notes, heart notes, bass notes, the sweat stained. You can have the cold pastorals, but poetry's futurity has a mind of its own, far be it from me. The wish to survive turns poets into poeticians, mincing their words. Okay, I'd like poetry to remove its leaden eyeliner, wake up to its own blind spots, put its vision through tectonic shifts. I'd like a poetry of unnatural acts that treats the mind as a muscle, treats the mind to a mind, treats the tongue as a muscle. A poetry of cultural incorrectness, inconvenient knowledge, mindfulness, that keeps covenant with old unsettlements, casts off insulated bliss. Says to human viciousness, I wouldn't if I were you. The poem is epiphany cake sent to prisoners of American culture, the ebon and the flaxen with a knife baked in it. Can we talk about something else? The poem is something else. Language is a foreign feeling. Saying to those who are expatriates in their native land, the fellow travelers, castaways, shipwrecked, exiled, defectors, if you lived here, you'd be home by now. So I, that last part is just as difficult as poetry <laughs> as I read it. It's that last part went from prose into a kind of po poetry again, I think. So I think that that is a, a real case for the importance uh, of poetry um, and what it can do, um, where it can take us, how it can heal us. And so I really, I, I know you, you'll have a, a wonderful selection. I'm wondering who, who did you turn to at the beginning of this pandemic or who do you turn to as not just necessarily solace, but you know, there's some, a touchstone of some kind or maybe some poets that people could discover in these times that would give them that. I think it's important in terms of who to discover to let, sort of let the randomness of the universe have a chance. I, I'm very interested in um, accident and chance. And I don't like to prescribe things that much. Um, I think if people read almost randomly, they'll be drawn to things and be patient with it. And read, read, just don't read the poets that are being celebrated right now, because there's all kinds of politics in literature, unfortunately, in the arts, in all the arts, very political. Um, very much about gatekeeping. So to read widely and to read in a way that isn't controlled by the gatekeepers. And it will come to you. I, I believe that you'll find the things that speak to you, but first you have to go to the books. And so to go to a library and just start at one end of, end of the shelf and read all the poems all the way across the shelf. And don't, be, don't try and say, oh, I'm gonna read that one because it got a good review and whatever. New York Times book review or whatever. I'm going to read that one because a blogger you know, recommended, but just read the whole shelf because I'm a great believer in the undiscovered artist, the one that no one is reading but was brilliant, the one who died young or the one who never got the breaks, 
luck is so much a part of the arts. And so the ones who are vaunted and celebrated, maybe they're not the only ones. And um, maybe they're not even the ones that you would like the best as a reader. So I would say let randomness have a, a, a chance here. I read that way myself. I try to read um, everyone. <laughs> my, my, this is just a small part of my library. I have thousands and I've kept, I think every poetry book I've ever owned. I don't think I ever got rid of anything. I'm not like that Marie Kondo, is that her name? The person who wants to keep everything small. I'm a maximalist. I want to you know, hold on to as much as possible um, and to not be controlled by those who are telling you what to do to be rebellious in a, in a way that is just letting things come to you through a random act of what's out there, everything, to be a maximalist in that way. I don't know if I'm answering that question. No, I think that that's important because we do have to, it's interesting because it's, there's a question of canons and it's important that you address that. And there was something that um, Terry was also interested in is how do you get, how do you get it? How do you get that foot in the door? How do you get started? And there are gatekeepers, uh, gatekeepers and sometimes the most sensitive aren't good at navigating. And also by saying we need to enlarge the canons. If you're a, a young or aspiring writer, um, if you're making space for these voices, then that, that means you're also, there's also space for you in that. Mm -hmm. So I do think that's a very important mes message for all artists or people who are curious is just to make sure to follow your own curiosity and not somebody else's, I suppose. Um, so, and I guess just on your thoughts about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation. We always like to ask because of the educational initiative, like your thoughts about the future, like beyond the importance of the arts, but also about, you know, education and the kind of, um, yeah, I don't know whether global warming, mean, there's so many things, so many crises we're going through now. So your thoughts about, you know, the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, even ideas for solutions. I'm, I, I'll take solutions from poets, from, <laughs> from physicists, from, <laughs> I, I, like, I like to hear, um, what what your ideas are because you never know where the good ideas come from <laughs> and, and we have to speak across That's disciplines so huge well i don't know if we'll ever i think it's so slow progress is is so slow um but when you began asking this at the very beginning of the interview about the big questions i i think how over time humanity has has addressed some of the big wrongs um, and we're still in that, uh, I'll just say child labor, for example, in the 19th century. It was done and it was regretted, but it existed. And then we gradually phased it out and now children are not, you know, required to work in factories and such, but it's an example. And then uh, we've tried to improve, improve our knowledge of how to treat the earth with environmentalism. Uh, we've become more uh, cognizant, more appreciative of what we need to do. Uh, it's the same with race. We're, we're trying to get there. We're trying to you know, raise our consciousness and realize that um, there are vast inequities that we need to address. So it's such an ongoing process. And when I look back doing my research for my book set in different decades, 
I looked at the 20s and the, it was rife with racism, just rife with uh, things that today would make us cringe, that would make, um, that would make almost anyone, white, white people certainly cringe to see, let alone people of color, what was being done in that decade. And, and so gradually, I think, I think we are improving. And I want to say that one area right now that we need to think about, I'm so glad that people are thinking about race and Black Lives Matter. It's great that it's become this banner. It's become something very big at the moment, which is fantastic. Um, one of the biggest and best social changes though in my lifetime that I never thought I would see is the acceptance of, um, of gayness, of, of trans sexuality, of, um, I never thought that would happen in my lifetime. And that it did is so heartening that people now can, gender is so flexible and uh, gender roles are flexible and the body is flexible. Um, you know, that, that, that we have as much acceptance of gay sexuality is amazing. And to me, that's an amazing positive change. Um, one thing that we need to raise our consciousness on that I think is we're still way behind where we should be is animals and what we do to them. They're at our disposal in a certain sense. We have power over them. And they're creatures that suffer in inten intensely, creatures that feel, and yet we eat them. We slaughter them and we eat them. And to me, that's horrific. It's something that we deny. It's something that we suppress, we repress. We uh, package it neatly, the meat, so on, so that we don't have to think of the animal it came from. And I predict that a hundred years from now, people will look back at us and say, how could they do that? How could they do that? How could they eat those things? We're, we're heading this way with plant-based cuisine, veganism and so on. But I think there'll be a time, I don't know when, when that will be regarded as barbaric, what we do. That we slaughtered them wholesale, you know, the cows and animals that wanted to live. We raised them for those purposes, we tortured them. All of that will be regarded as barbaric, just as we now look back and we say, the way we treated groups of people was barbaric we want to improve. And the way we treated children was barbaric. I think it'll be extended. So I'm hoping that the next, the generation now seems to have a consciousness that's really attuned to social wrongs and to inequities at this moment, which is so hopeful. And I, I hope they can extend it outside whatever their own area of pain and need is. For example, me as a white woman, I hope I can think about people of color. It's not just about me. Uh, as a white woman, I have an obligation to think about um, people who aren't white, um, to extend outside my own area of privilege. And I hope as human beings, we can extend outside our area of power and privilege to think about the planet and to think about animals, which is, uh, coming, I think. That whole consciousness is on its way. Well, I want to thank you, Alice Fulton, for your poems, stories, uh, essays that inviting us to live more thoughtful lives, um, encouraging uh, meditation and uh, uh, um, inviting us to 
explore the joys of language in, it, in all its complexity. Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia, and thank you, Terry. It's been, it's been so fun. I really appreciate it. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer and co-anchor on this podcast was Terry Clark. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Digital media coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime, our song, was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for joining us.